Tonight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am Portia Dossi, and I will be your host for this episode of Knight's History Cast. The Department of History's Interim Department Chair, Dr. Peter Larson, sat down with Dr. Joshua Tate, an Associate Professor of Law at Southern Methodist University. He spoke about the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest, which is having its 800th year anniversary in 2017. The Charter of the Forest was issued in 1217 to allow free men to use lands wrongly claimed by King John and his predecessors. Sit back and take a listen. This is Dr. Peter Larson of the University of Central Florida Department of History. I'm here today with Joshua Tate, Associate Professor at the Southern Methodist University Dead Man School of Law. Later today, Professor Tate is giving a lecture on Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest here at UCF. Thank you for joining us today, Josh. Today we're going to talk about the subject of your talk, Magna Carta, as well as legal history more broadly, and how history can prepare a student for law school. Thank you. So let's start with the obvious question. Many people have heard of Magna Carta, but what is the Charter of the Forest? The Charter of the Forest was a document issued under the name of the King Henry III, who was John's son, in 1217. And it was issued together with a reissue of Magna Carta. And it's actually the reason why the document we know as Magna Carta is called Magna Carta. Because the original Magna Carta uh, was issued by King John in 1215, but he then had that document annulled. And it was not called Magna Carta at that time. Uh, John never called it Magna Carta. After John died in 1216, the barons who were advising the young King Henry III reissued John's charter, but then the following year in 1217, they reissued John's charter again, along with the Charter of the Forest. And so to distinguish the older charter of King John from the new forest charter, they called the older one Magna Carta, or the long charter, or as we call it, the great charter, that means the same in in Latin. But more specifically, what the Charter of the Forest did was it rolled back uh, some of the aggressive penalties that King John and his older brother and their father, uh, his older brother Richard and their father Henry II had um, employed uh, with respect to the forest. The royal forest uh, took up a lot of the Kingdom of England about a third of the kingdom was uh, treated as as royal forest. And within the forest, there were all sorts of penalties that the kings levied on their subjects, uh, charging them very high fines if they killed the king's deer uh, or killed the deer, hunted, poached the deer uh, in the royal forest uh, or the boar or other animals. And the Charter of the Forest limited the penalties that could be exacted, but more significantly reduced the range of the royal forest back to the, um, the extent that it had been before Henry II. Uh, so significant reduction in the territory that was treated as the royal forest, but also a lessening of those penalties that John had used to oppress uh, his subjects. Just thinking about the royal forest, Is there any connection with Robin Hood? 
Well, the Robin Hood myth uh, is connected with King John that at least the modern uh, versions of it often have John as the villain or John as the main villain with the Sheriff of Nottingham as his underling. Uh, of course, Robin Hood was probably not a historic, actual historical person, but it's set around the time of, of John's reign. Uh, or rather, uh, in some versions of it, it's while John is acting as regent while his older brother Richard is off in the Crusades. But there is a, a spark of, of, of truth in that Robin Hood is, is uh, showing how um, the government, the king's government, was oppressing uh, the people and that the forest was being uh, taken away from them. Uh, that their rights were being restricted to the forest. So I think there's a grain of truth in that, in that story that, that has come down uh, through its various retellings over the, over the centuries. Thank you. Uh, king John is usually seen as one of England's worst kings. Was he really that bad? The short answer is yes. Um, there have been efforts over generations of historians to try to rehabilitate uh, King John. Um, that people say actually he wasn't much worse than his uh, older brother, his father, that, that some of the things that he was blamed for, uh, they did as well. But uh, there has been some uh, reaction to that more recently. And the, and the consensus, I think, today is that, yes, he was a, he was a bad king uh, because he was unable to control some of his worst impulses he made decisions that what, what we would call unforced errors uh, that uh, cost him dearly uh, without you know, factoring in the, the consequences. He wasn't a very good leader. He was a person who was um, greedy and, and would try to get more than, than, than he realistically could and then end up getting nothing. So I think the historians today would say that, that he was a bad king but there are ways in which his behavior was actually replicated uh, or replicated uh, what his, um, his predecessors did. One example you could give is that he, he had levied very high taxes uh, at certain points in his reign. Well, Richard had done that as well. However, the difference was that Richard was levying taxes uh, in order to ransom himself after he was captured during the crusade and also to support his famous uh, fight against Saladin during, during the crusade. So there was a, a moral justice to Richard's exactions as perceived by the people that John's attempt to reconquer his land in France didn't have. These are events 800 years ago. Uh, King John sealed Magna Carta, or the original charter in 1215, as you noted, uh, it was reissued for his son with the Charter of the Forest in 1217. How is Magna Carta still relevant to us today? Well, one important uh, aspect of Magna Carta that is still relevant today is access to justice. Um, one of the provisions of Magna Carta that doesn't get mentioned as often today as it really should said that common pleas would not follow the king around the country but would be held in a fixed place. And that fixed place eventually becomes Westminster Hall, where all of the central royal courts met uh, in Westminster, which is now a, a suburb of London. Um, before that provision was put into Magna Carta, 
if you wanted to bring an action before the king's court, the king could require you to come personally to wherever the king happened to be. And the king had liked to travel around his kingdom. He had a lot of different places he could go to hunt and, and uh, he liked to travel around. So it might be difficult to find the king. And then once you found him, he might decide that he's going to personally intervene in the, in the case and rule in favor of his friend or rule against his enemy uh, without following the basic principle of rule of law. There were instances where John did exactly that. So by saying that the common pleas had to be held in a fixed place, it meant that it was easier to find where you were supposed to bring that type of action and maybe you didn't live in London, but it was easy to get there because that was the capital and all of the um, pathways and waterways would, would provide access to, uh, to London. Uh, and also it limited the possibility of the king uh, directly intervening in that case. So obviously we have progressed in many different ways far beyond what was uh, recognized in Magna Carta. that We have all kinds of rights. The people have rights that, that were not even dreamed of in the time of, of Magna Carta, such as um, protection against uh, discrimination on the basis of race, uh, women's rights, uh, the right to vote for all people and not just for the elite. Um, however, if you don't have access to justice, none of those other rights matters. That You have to have a court where you can bring your claim uh, if you've been wronged before any of those other rights becomes meaningful. So, uh, so Magna Carta was important at least in that respect and remains relevant today as, as the underpinning of the access to justice that, uh, that permits all of these other rights. What is one thing today that people usually get wrong about Magna Carta? The thing that people most often get wrong has to do with right to trial by jury. Um, there is a famous clause of Magna Carta, Clause 39, that says that no free man may be deceased of his free tenement uh, without uh, a, uh, a decision of his, of his equals, uh, or the, uh, without a judgment of, of his peers. That has been misunderstood as reflecting a, a protection of trial by jury in criminal cases. But that was not possible because in the year 1215, at least in June of 1215, they didn't have any jury trials in criminal cases. The jury, jury trials were used for civil cases, but criminal cases were decided primarily by the ordeals, such as the ordeal of water, which involved taking a person and dunking them into some water to see if they floated or not, and then the priest would uh, pronounce a blessing over this and they would decide whether the person was guilty or innocent based on the outcome of the ordeal. So whatever that provision meant, and there's discussion about uh, what that might actually have meant, it didn't mean that there was a right to trial by jury in criminal cases. Notwithstanding that, some very distinguished jurists have made that assumption. Blackstone, uh, William Blackstone, who was the author of the first uh, learned commentary on the entire corpus of, uh, of the English common law, he misunderstood that provision as protecting right to trial by jury in criminal cases, and others uh, have made the same assumption. But that's one thing that people get wrong. Another thing that people get wrong, however, is on the, at the other extreme, you have some people who think that Magna Carta was only important for the most 
powerful, wealthiest people in the kingdom, that it only protected the interests of the barons, the, the most powerful barons. But that wasn't true because Magna Carta also gave rights or respected uh, the rights of the church, of the city of London, and to the extent that it provided uh, access to justice, it also um, gave something of benefit to all the freemen in the country. And that was, depending on what statistics you use, probably about 40% of the population. So it wasn't that Magna Carta only benefited a very small few. However, it was not as broad with respect to jury trial as some have assumed. Well, thank you. When we're thinking about legal history in general, I mean, we can talk about your teaching, your research, my teaching, my research, but there's more than that. And one other topic I wanted to bring up here is that you are the honorary treasurer for the United States for the Selden Society, a, a British legal history society. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Selden Society? The Selden Society is the oldest legal history society in the world. It was founded in 1887 by Frederick William Maitland, who was a very uh, distinguished uh, legal historian of the English common law. And it, its existence uh, is primarily to further scholarship and research into English legal history. And so the Selden Society publishes an annual series of volumes, which are um, mostly edited primary source material so original court records that have been edited and then translated into English um, as, as necessary. Sometimes they were originally in English. Uh, translated and with uh, very copious and detailed references as well as uh, usually thorough introductions written by the experts in those, in those uh, areas. And so they've been publishing those volumes since 1887. They, they also publish additional uh, volumes, uh, special series that, that are independent of the regular uh, volumes. And there is an annual meeting every year in London, and usually it's held in one of the original inns of court. And at the annual general meeting, someone will give a lecture, and those lectures will also be published as, as a series and sent for free to all of the members of the society. The Selden Society in the United States has about 400 members. Um, some of them are institutions, law libraries, college libraries, um, some bar association libraries, but uh, most of the members are individuals, and that includes a lot of attorneys, judges, um, history professors, and just people who have an interest in, in legal history. So that's essentially what the Selden Society is. Just to interject a little bit of local flavor, there is a city near Orlando that is Maitland, Florida. While it's not named after F.W. Maitland, the similarities of the coats of arms for the city and the Maitland family suggest um, it might have been named after or founded by someone closely connected to that legal historian. So I, I thought that was just very interesting, that local connection. Um, you mentioned that the society includes not just uh, legal historians, but also practicing lawyers and judges. Why is it important to bring together the academics and those who actually practice the law? Well, first I would say that, um, you know, I, we could use the example of, of uh, trial by jury in Magna Carta to show how having some knowledge of history can be beneficial to judges and lawyers. That, 
if you read through the cases without the knowledge of, of historical scholarship, you might think that actually Magna Carta did guarantee this uh, right to trial by jury in criminal cases. But being informed by the work of historians would show a, uh, a judge or a lawyer that that's actually not the case. And that particular issue has, has come up in, in, in more recent court decisions. It's going to be unusual for something from 800 years ago to actually uh, impact uh, a particular decision. But as you get to more recent history, uh, then certainly an understanding of history can help um, help lawyers reach uh, make good arguments and help the judges make correct decisions in cases. The flip side of that is that I think it helps historians and academics to have a connection with lawyers and judges because otherwise we tend to get obsessed with questions that are so esoteric that they would never actually make a difference. Um, there's a word that is being used more and more uh, in academic circles which a lot of academics despise and it is impactful. Um, that we want our, uh, our research to be impactful. Well that means we want it to make a difference somehow. And if you don't know the, if, if, if professors are not interacting with lawyers or judges, uh, I'm speaking mainly of law professors, but if, if professors who, who write on uh, legal history are not interacting with lawyers and judges, then we're going to end up debating uh, issues that really don't interest anyone other than ourselves. And once you actually find out what people are really concerned about, uh, there, it actually can open up whole new horizons of uh, research uh, to, when, when you see what actually people are concerned about. So I think the Selden Society can play a very helpful role in that regard. I was uh, very impressed recently I had the opportunity to go to Australia, um, to Queensland, and the Selden Society local chapter in Queensland, which is this, one of the states in Australia and the capital is Brisbane, they have an annual lecture series in Brisbane which the Supreme Court Library of Queensland sponsors, and they have judges give lectures as a Selden Society series. And each lecture is on a legal history topic, but not always English legal history. In fact, one of them, the one that I attended, was about the history of the Queensland Supreme Court fire of uh, several decades ago when the building burned down. And it was a lecture given by one of the judges, or perhaps he was a barrister, who happened to be there when this happened. Um, but it was still a great opportunity for the academics to get together with the lawyers and make some of those connections that sometimes are missing uh, when you have this, you know, iron curtain between the, the, the academy and, and the practicing bar. Well, you yourself bridged that divide because you have both a JD and a PhD. You've written on Texas law as well as Ange you know, medieval Angevin English law and customs. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about law school since you are a professor of law. Um, I, noticed your, your, I noticed that your undergraduate degree was in ancient and medieval history. How did that prepare you for law school? I think that studying history was an excellent preparation for law school because it gave me uh, some tools for how to analyze and solve uh, difficult evidentiary problems. Uh, the work that historians do and the work that lawyers do, there's a lot of overlap in those two tasks. A historian is trying to deal with a messy uh, collection of evidence as to what might have happened with regard to some important event and put together a narrative about it which is plausible, which is supported by the evidence, 
but doesn't make unwarranted assumptions. But at the same time, you want it to make sense. You want it, you want it to be a narrative that people can understand. So you're, you're taking all these facts and then presenting them for an audience of people who are not specialists to try to make sense of this, uh, this particular historical event or of this particular king or emperor or what have you. Uh, lawyers are taking facts and trying to put together a narrative that supports their client's position. And if you take, say, it's a criminal case and you're representing the defendant, you're looking at the evidence and you're finding the, the narrative that supports a finding that your client is innocent. If you're representing the government, the prosecutor, then you're trying to put together a narrative that supports uh, the person being guilty. And if you can't put together that narrative, then you have to enter into a, a plea bargain or something. If you can't put together a narrative, then you're going to lose the case unless you can reach some favorable um, um, plea or settlement with the other side. So the work of a lawyer and the work of a historian, there's a lot of overlap. And especially coming into law school, I felt very familiar in, in the environment of being a first-year law student, having come out of an undergraduate history program. It would probably be a more difficult transition from other, uh, other majors, but it was quite easy to go from history into, into that. <laughs> What made you decide to pursue the PhD after doing your law degree? Well, while I was studying history, I, I went to a, a small college in, in California, Pomona College, and I got to know my professors very well, and some of them were encouraging me to consider doing a PhD in history, not so much as a supplement to law school, but as an alternative to law school, because I hadn't really considered that. I was just studying history because I had to study something, but I wanted to go to law school. But I got more and more interested in it, and uh, my professors convinced me that I, I could actually uh, be a historian. Um, and I thought about that, but I still wanted to go to law school. And while I was studying in England uh, on a study abroad program, I remember going through on microfiche, this was before we had the internet, but we on microfiche, the, the Yale Law School uh, catalog with, with all the faculty bios, and I saw that several of the professors actually had a JD and a PhD in history, or a PhD in another field, and that gave me the idea, well, what if I actually did both? And that was, the, that was what I ended up doing, and when I went to law school, my first year of law school, I applied to the PhD program at Yale, and I was accepted. And then I was a joint degree student. So the rest of my time there, I was switching back and forth, taking classes in both the history department and the law school. So now that you're a professor of law and thinking about your own background in history and law, what advice would you give to an undergraduate history major now who's thinking about going to law school? I guess there are two ways you could look at that question. One, whether someone would want to go to law school at all, and the other is if you've decided you want to go, what should you be doing to prepare for it? In terms of deciding whether to go to law school, one suggestion I would have is to think about, do you actually want to study law for three years? Because that's a different question than do you want to be a lawyer? When you think about what lawyers do, if, you know, if you've watched television programs about, about lawyers, you may have a quite different perspective from what actually most lawyers do. Most lawyers don't spend a lot of time in court. Um, if they're in litigation, 
then they spend most of their time drafting motions and preparing for trials that don't actually happen because they settle or because there's a plea bargain. And there are some lawyers, many lawyers, who don't do uh, any litigation work at all, who are transactional lawyers. And then there are people who use their law degree to do something that doesn't actually require being admitted to the bar at all. There's some people who become investment bankers or, or run their own companies and things like that. So what I would think about is, do you actually want to, to, to study law for three years? And if the idea of studying law for three years is appealing, then, then you should possibly go to law school if that's what you want to do. But if you feel like you're, you're not going to enjoy it and you're just going to law school so that you can have the fun experience of being like, um, this is going to date me, but I'm thinking Allie McBeal, but that's been off the air for a long time. Uh, if you want to be like a person on, on, on TV, uh, then maybe that's not a good reason to go to law school. I think it's, it's, it was great to study for law for three years, and it would, be a, would have been a great preparation even, even if I had decided not to, uh, not to teach at a law school, even if I had, just, if I had gone to uh, teach history or do something else. Now, in terms of what can you do to best prepare yourself for law school, the, obviously the most important things for getting into a good law school are your grades and your score on the law school admissions test. So do everything you can to uh, do well on that test. Sometimes people ask me, students ask me, um, how do you get a good score on the LSAT? All I can tell you is I just went through a bunch of old practice tests and uh, Eventually, I, I, did, I did get a good score, but I didn't take any special class, but that, there may well be prep classes and things like that that help. Um, but of course, GPA is also important. So all of the things that you've been doing to be the sort of person who would be interested in law school, taking your classes seriously and uh, working hard on those writing skills, developing good relationships with some professors who can write you uh, good references, the, the, those things are all good steps to get into a good law school. Okay, so say a student has thought this through and decided they do want to study law for three years. How would they go about choosing the right law program for them? What I suggest people start off by thinking about is when you're choosing between law schools, that first question you should think about is how strong is the economy, the job market, and the law school's core market? And secondly, how strong is this particular law school's relative position within that core market? Because a lot of the other things that we, that we like to think about in deciding whether a program is good or not, how strong are the faculty, how, how well placed are the graduates, how strong is the alumni network, a lot of that comes out of how good the economy is and secondly, how strong is this law school within that market. Um, so. If you're going to law school in a place that has a, a very strong economy, that means even if your plan is to go be a public interest lawyer, and so you're not, you know, you're not as tied to the, the economic conditions, there's not going to be as many people competing for that type of job as there would be if there uh, are no big companies hiring in that area. Um, so finding a, a, a law school that's in a strong economic market and that is well regarded within that market. And then when you have those two things going for that, for that law school, then I would look at things like how strong are the faculty, what kind of clinics and what kind of centers and, and other research 
uh, specialty opportunities are there, how strong and varied is the curriculum, um, those sorts of things are all relevant. What kinds of, of culture does this law school have? Are the students helping each other or are they competing against each other in a zero-sum game? Um, but, but I think I would, I would start with those questions about the law school's market. And, and a lot of this stuff you can find by going and look at the mandatory disclosure forms that all the, uh, the law schools uh, have to file as required by the American Bar Association. And you can pull up and you can get data, very detailed information about the types of, of jobs that students are able to obtain and um, where they, they end up placing their students, and, and, and I think that would be very helpful. That's why the ABA requires us to disclose that information. Well, thank you very much. That sounds very helpful. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today about Magna Carta and law school, and I'm really looking forward to your lecture. Thank you. It's my pleasure. That was Dr. Joshua Tate, an associate professor of law at Southern Methodist University. Interviewing him was Dr. Peter Larson, interim department chair at the Department of History. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Portia Dossi. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.